Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep a poem from the Fungi from Yagath cycle uh, called Hesperia. It's a sonnet cycle uh, with 36 poems. This is somewhere in the middle. I uh, don't remember where it's supposed to be placed. You know, in, you're, you're not being lucky. No. That's because it's number 13. Yeah. It's in the original publication in Weird Tales, they, they, they call it number three. But they, I don't know how they got their, their count for that. Um, it was first published in Weird Tales, October 1930. And um, it's been sort of reorganized to fit as, yeah, right in the middle there, number 13, or I guess near the beginning. One of, uh, one of my favorites, uh, although I really, I, I, I think there's merit in most of the poems in the cycle. But we somehow settled on this one as the first one to talk about. Uh, it it was your suggestion, and I'm hoping that when you read it, um, you'll remember why it sprang first to your mind. <laughs> uh, well, Leal, why don't I read it? I love to read H.P. Lovecraft poems aloud. I think they're just beautiful that way. So I'll I'll read through, and then and then we can talk about it. Here it is. Hesperia. The winter sunset flaming beyond spires and chimneys half detached from this dull sphere opens great gates to some forgotten year of elder splendors and divine desires. Expectant wonders burn in those rich fires, adventure fraught and not untinged with fear, a row of sphinxes where the way leads clear. Towards walls and turrets quivering to far liars. It is a land where beauty, it is a land where beauty's meaning flowers, where every unplaced memory has a source, where the great river time begins its course. Down the vast void in starlit streams of ours, dreams bring us close, but ancient lore repeats that human tread has never soiled these streets. <laughs> So how come you you like reading that aloud? You know, modern readers tend to read poetry silently to themselves the same way they read uh, novels or short stories. What is there about this that makes you want to do it aloud, Jesse? Yeah, well, one one of the things is I would say everything should be read aloud. And if it, it doesn't sound good aloud, maybe it shouldn't be written. <laughs> um, but I think Lovecraft and poems especially – and maybe especially Lovecraft poems ought to be read aloud um, because of just all the beautiful sounds that come out and how evocative they are, not just to the ear, but also to image in the mind. And uh, I think this has, I mean, words like um, liar, L-Y-R-E, right? Liars. L I L I A R. You know, you you need to hear it aloud uh, to hear both meanings to to have that come out. And I I just love the way he composes his poems. It's inspiring. Was that a pun? 
because <laughs> well, the first line sure. is, does end with the word spires. Yeah. So it's an inspiring it's, poem. It I, is. I think I would, I'm impelled to read it, uh, to read Hesperia uh, more, in a, perhaps a more stately uh, mm. way than you did. I, obviously, any reading is an interpretation. Uh, the winter sunset flaming beyond spires and chimneys half drenched from this dull sphere opens great gates to some forgotten year of elder splendors and divine desires. I think for me, that more stately reading makes the connection between spires and desires um, easier to catch. Mm. Um, uh, the eye can catch it, of course, but the ear to catch it needs that, that rhyme. And then the next quatrain, expectant wonders burn in those rich fires. Uh, well, we hear the spires, desires, picked up immediately with fires. And then mm -hmm. they go to at the end of that quatrain, the liars that you mentioned. So the four words together, those rhyme words, spires beyond spires, right? Divine desires, right? Rich fires and far liars. These three ires, excuse me, these four ires all represent something outside of the grasp of, of human beings. We live in a, a fallen world. Um, these splendors are elder splendors. These desires aren't ours. These are divine desires. Um, we live in, in a fallen world, and so we want to go back. So the dreams bring us close to this land, Hesperia. Mm -hmm. But ancient lore repeats that human tread has never soiled these streets. So repeats and streets that's mundane. That's us. And we can't get there. The mundane can never get to this this particular place. Uh, mm -hmm. If you know your Greek mythology, I mean, if one knows one's Greek mythology, the Hesperides are these golden islands, or sometimes it's the, the three nymphs who live on a, an island, or maybe it's a garden somewhere uh, just beyond the uh, the gates of... Uh, of Atlas, so that they are perhaps in Portugal. Um, it's it's beyond the Mediterranean world. It's so, it's out there to the west, and this mm -hmm. this is a place of of wonder. It's gorgeous, right? But mm -hmm. it's it's beyond us. It's fallen away from us, um, as as did Atlantis uh, in in Plato. So, what's beautiful? Is also gone. And yet what I love about this, and it fits with the notion of cycle itself, and this this sonnet is part of a sonnet cycle. Um, the cycle has 36 sonnets. 36 is the number of decans as you go around the cycle of the year, right? 360 degrees makes the cycle of the sky. 36 sonnets, and each sonnet has its own repetitions within it. Right? That's why we have that, that rhyming form. So we try to get close, we go again and again and again, but we can never get there because we live in a fallen world. The best we can do in our lives is the dream. The best we can do in art is the, is the poem, um, but we never get there. So 
we live in a world that is fallen. That means it's it's later in time. But we also are recognizing that this place is a place that we are seeking to get back to. So it's in the future. Mm-hmm. But it's an impossible future. We can never get back there. The human tread has never soiled these streets. So clearly we didn't come from there. We didn't even exist before the Hesperides had been left. It's in a way parallel to the notion of Eden. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, the, the sunset image, which is beautiful, mm-hmm. um, flaming beyond spires and chimneys, half detached from this dull sphere. So our earth, that's dull. Our lives are mundane, right? half detached. We have this glimpse of something else. Lovecraft could have just spoken of sunset because the Hesperides are, you know, to the West. They're beyond uh, the pillars of Hercules, uh, the the gates of Atlas. Um, But he, in fact, calls them, speaks of the winter sunset. You know, he could have spoken of the spring sunset or the fall sunset or the, uh, the summer sunset. What winter is the sunset of the year as well as the sunset being the sunset of the day. The very beginning of this is a movement toward darkness. And the poem is a celebration of trying to remain warm against that impending death, flaming beyond spires. Mm -hmm. The chimneys are half detached from this cold, this dull sphere. Right, so we, we've got the possibility of keeping warm, but even that possibility is getting away from us. This is, um, this is a poem that would rather celebrate Hesperia, Hesperia than recognize that we are forever out of it, unless, that is, away from Hesperia, unless we can somehow consider ourselves dead. There is a... Uh, a thanatophilia here, a a desire Mm. for death that is the only liveliness beyond the purely aesthetic, the colors, the the flames, the architecture. And in that sense, I think that this is uh, not like Poe. Poe wants death, but he wants death because um, a human connection has eluded him. He's tried, but it's disappeared, as in Annabelle Lee, for example. He marries her, but but then she right away dies. And so the speaking voice wants death because it's a way to rejoin the other. But for Lovecraft, who clearly uh, admired Poe endlessly, obsessively, for Lovecraft, he never does make the connection with someone else. It's just that he's fallen. He's already in a lost world even Mm. without having lost a connection. And so what he wants is a world that human tread has never been on. And were it there, it would be an intrusion. That's why the word soiled. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a powerful, complicated desire to go before and after, but never in our current world. Mm -hmm. So I've got to ask you, did I just say something that seems strange to you? Or since, as I would suggest, these thematic tensions of desire and impossibility 
run through all 36 of the poems of this sonnets of this cycle. Is that perhaps one of the reasons that you like reading them aloud? Because you can feel that tension. Mm-hmm. I, I I think every every line enriches the next line, and every poem enriches the the preceding poem. And w- w- one of the things that you see in every poem is sort of he's dealing with one of the one or more of the themes that are in his other works as well. But they're, these are like condensed meditations uh, in a very visualized form of that. So one of the things you, you, you're you pointing to, that, that desire for death, I, it's not the death of, you know, like a, opposed death where it's sort of a gloomy underworld style death it is much more uh like the death that we saw in a in a story we both read called ex oblivione where you've got a uh a person seeking death in dream in order to not exist as a being anymore and that is very as you pointed out a very platonic um you know it's not it's not the uh, Atlantis as much as as it is the realm of the forms in uh, the first two lines of the of the second stanza it is the land where beauty's meaning flowers this is a very deep idea I think that beauty has no meaning except in this land where you can see it come into full form where every unplaced memory has a source well, we have these things, these deja vus, where we recognize something improperly. We say, I've had this experience before, or I know this somehow. And evidence to the contrary is all around us, but the feeling's still there. Um, this is very platonic as well. Plato thinks that we come from a land where we have knowledge of perfect societies or perfect cities or perfect anything, right? You have a object. You say that's a chair. I know it. This is the ideal form of a chair. It is the perfection of a chair, and that is this is the land where this Hesperia is the place where these odd feelings come from, and we we can never get there, of course, in life. But dreams bl- bring us close. Right. Yeah. We can see the what, what's so amazing is that when you start reading this poem, you I picture a guy sort of watching the sunset through his city, seeing the the spires of the churches, the chimneys of the factories, looking at the sun go down in the West. Right. And then. And then they become half detached and it's no longer his city. It is an untreadable city, another place, a new land, right, that is led to through the poem, right, expectant wonders burn in those rich fires. What are these expectant wonders? It's what is that, right? We, it's the future. And then or, a or, row or of sphinxes. Past. Right. And a row of sphinxes where the way leads clear. Well, why sphinxes? Why uh, all these riddles of of reality? What is the meaning of right? You know, and at any point those sphinxes we get the answer wrong, right? 
in in my illustration of this poem when i'm i'm sitting down and reading it with my students i'm like i'm as they read it as i read it i'm drawing i'm carving out the image on the page and i see yeah it's not just spires of churches and spires of you know chimneys they're also rocket ships right to take us into space to go to that place that are half detached from the earth right it's uh, it's so evocative of so many things and and yet it's it, there's no person here it's very in, in concrete so i can't say exactly why i i chose it but i love i love this poem it's oh. it's not specifically remarkable amongst the others other than to me it's a great poem i do agree that it's uh there is something marvelous and here, and I think for me, having worked through the rich layers of it, uh, which we've only begun, um, the marvel at the bottom is that is that tension mm-hmm. that despite the recognition that we live in a, a world uh, that cannot give us that to which we, and I mean this pun, aspire. Um, we can we can have faith that there is such a world, that it is, although out of our grasp, there, and it is an unsoiled world of perfection. It may be a world we can find only in books. Uh, if I may, uh, I love the second poem in the cycle very much, Pursuit. Mm-hmm. I'd like to, to read it uh, quickly uh, because it makes more than a small connection with Hesperia. I held the book beneath my coat at pains to hide the thing from sight in such a place, hurrying through the ancient harbor lanes with oft, often turning head and nervous pace. Dull, furtive windows in old, tottering brick peered at me oddly as I hastened by, and thinking what they sheltered, I grew sick for a redeeming glimpse of clean blue sky. No one had seen me take the thing. But still, a blank laugh echoed in my whirling head, and I could guess what nighted worlds of ill lurked in that volume I had coveted. The way grew strange, the walls alike and matting, and far behind me, unseen feet were padding. Mm. Here... The object of of desire, the thing worth stealing, is the book. Mm-hmm. Right? It's it's it, this particular book. One has to suppose, since we're not told what's exactly in it. Although the the first poem in the cycle gives a hint to that its content. This this particular book is something worth stealing. It's something that one can't just obtain and one wants it. When he says he keeps it behind beneath his coat, he's also keeping it close to his heart. He's carrying mm-hmm. it within his body. And in fact, something is after him. So these are, these are the soiled human streets. Mm-hmm. Right? These are the streets that we inhabit because we want more than we can have in our fallen world. You know, the, the riddle of the Sphinx to which you alluded before, um, 
is one that Oedipus in the famous myth actually answers correctly. You know, mm-hmm. It goes on four in the morning, um, two at noon and three in the evening. Uh, a man, he answers, a baby crawls, uh, someone in his prime walks uh, upright and in one's older years, one uses a cane. Um, but most people don't get the answer right. And so the Sphinx kills them. Mm-hmm. So a row of Sphinxes where the way leads clear toward the walls and turrets quivering to far liars. The way may lead clear, but you can't mm. get by the sphinxes. Why? Not because we don't know the answer to the riddle, but because we are man. Mm-hmm. You, that's the human condition is that we are, in fact, mortal. Uh, the word spire for someone so attuned to sound cannot, I think, help but bring up other words like aspire, as I did mm-hmm. before, or inspire, Mm-hmm. respire, respiration, the word sphinx is from the same Greek root as the word sphincter. Mm-hmm. Um, it means to strangle. And that's how the sphinx, although it, it, it has claws, for example, it, it could rend you, you know, physically up your body, tear it to shreds. In fact, the sphinx kills by strangulation. It keeps the air from going in and out. And that breathing is the sign of things that are alive, all the way back in the the story of the Garden of Eden, right? Um, Eve is the mother of all things because she is the one who stands for breath, right? That's where her, her name comes from, is the breathing as opposed to the vegetable life, which isn't apparently breathing. So the Sphinx stops us from going through what looks like a clear way. Um, if, if we want to get to this perfect place, we need to get to the end of our years, the winter, and the end of our days, the sunset, and allow ourselves to go through and be consumed by those flames so that we are no longer breathing at all. And then we might get to where the great river time begins its course. That is, we can get out of time into a perfect land, as you say, of platonic ideals. And those ideals where human tread has never soiled those streets, um, they may be perfect and they may be beautiful, but if we are there, we will no longer be human. Mm-hmm. Are yeah. we willing to give up that humanity to have that access of timeless beauty? That I think is a question for most people, but I don't think it's a question for the poetic voice here. Hesperia is a place that he wants to achieve. Mm-hmm. I, I I think that what's so cool is because we are like that, like that character in in pursuit. We are carrying this book close to our breast. Um, I do, anyways. I I hold my Lovecraft. <laughs> a book of poetry close to my breast won't let anybody take it from me um uh, it, aware of the fact that it's a big book and i if i don't diligently you know uh get to it i i will be killed by some some sphinx on my path uh, i will be killed by some of those si- unknown silent feet right the unseen feet that are padding behind me uh, before i get through a good chunk of the book um and when you think of what he, what the narrator is doing you know the winter sunset is 
is going down, right? the sun is going down above the city. This is a cyclical thing, right? This is a thing that happens every day. It's very plain, but it is a, a constant reminder of mortality. And when we get to that second stanza, it is the place where every unplaced it is the place where every unplaced memory has a source, where the great river time, capital T, begins its course, right? That's it's not that sunset is the start of the day. Uh, sunrise is the start of the day. It's that sunset is the start of that cycle again. So we we go into dream and we almost get to that place if we can get past enough of the sphinxes. And then again in the morning, back to the sort of the unreal reality. But again, we have a chance the next day. It's a it's a beautiful cycle. Uh, it's sort of a this poem maybe epitomizes the whole of fungi from Yagatha. Maybe that's why it it was the one I thought to to do. I, I see your point. Um, if I may recur revert to that notion of of tension um, when one dies through the year and the day um, so we go into the darkness we finally have gotten past those sphinxes um, and are not human if we seek to celebrate what we get is the next dawning which mm-hmm. which is the thing unspoken in this poem not mm-hmm. a word about sunrise, not a word about the day, except to say that that's where the fallen world is. That when we think we have achieved that that knowledge, we've only come close in dream. And if we were to really achieve it in death, we'd never have another sunrise because we would be in the place where time begins its course. Once we start going down the course of time, down the vast void and starlit streams of hours, you know, picking up your your notion, Jesse, that we should hear the words, that mm. starlit stream of ah, H-O-U-R-S mm. is also the starlit stream of O-U-R-S, mm-hmm. right? Those exactly. starlit streams of hours are the ones in which we are ever hurtling more toward mortality, the one in which our very motion soils the streets, the one in which no matter how much we try to clutch to our breasts, the beautiful book with the beautiful vision, unseen feet are padding behind us. Mm -hmm. We can never be satisfied except in death, but the death that satisfies us can't be something experienced because it's always beyond us as mortals. What what an excruciating tension, which one could look at as a source of despair. But for Lovecraft, it's a source of inspiration Mm -hmm. because it always promises the possibility of beauty. And it's it's so strange that even though even though this is not there is no such place as Hesperia, right? And even though he even hints at that with that final line in the first stanza, you know, the far liars, right? Right. <laughs> that this dream that we have, it it's still true, right? It's still true because um, the poem is 
is uh, it's it's not just all about the inward, even though it is you know it talks about dream. It still it is the visual. Lovecraft loved walking the city at night, and I don't think enough people <laughs> sit and enjoy the sunset. You know, maybe maybe I don't even do it enough, but it's something something that is so demarcating of that line and i i think this is just a, a terrific example of of the fungi from yogat cycle and i i hope everybody dips into it and finds something of value because it's so good how can you not you're calling our attention back to that that uh that eighth line uh, a row of sphinxes where the way leads clear Toward mm-hmm. walls and turrets quivering to far liars. Um, one of the things that one always does, uh, at least unconsciously, but one can do it consciously, in reading a poem is think not only what is a word, but what other word might be there. Toward walls and turrets fragmenting to far liars, trembling to far liars, mm-hmm. singing to far liars. None of those words were there. Instead, it was quivering to far liars. The walls and turrets are simply responsive to that music, mm. simply responsive to the falsity. What is the falsity in the platonic world? What is the false thing in a platonic world that makes us quiver? In fact, in Plato's dialogues, he makes quite clear what it is. It's beauty. It mm-hmm. is the phantasm. It is the thing that appears to be true, even though it is not, in fact, mimesis. It's not an actual copy. It is something that makes you see the thing, even though it's not there. Those far liars give us a celestial music, hence the use of the word in the second line, this dull sphere. It's the music of the spheres, and what we're seeing beyond winter sunset is the fifth sphere, the outermost sphere, the eternal sphere, um, the one in which we find platonic forms, uh, which are forever unsoiled. But isn't it wonderful to know, to believe that that's where we came from and that's where we will go? Indeed. But there's always more to say. <laughs>